Loving God, we give you thanks that indeed we could gather together here today and we are gathering together in your name to be ministered to by you, your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray um, that whatever's said today, whatever's sung, whatever's prayed, whatever's done may be all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Lent. Lent are those 40 days or so of remembering Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and to the cross and beyond. So, who had pancakes on Tuesday? Anyone remembered? I remembered after dinner that it was Shrove Tuesday, which is not a good thing because, again, I have made a commitment to not have caffeine. Although, like anything with rules, I have discovered there are loopholes. Where there are rules, there are... <laughs> so this one, because it's Sunday, is my one caffeine one. I didn't know that till the very last Sunday of last year. <laughs> Having done Lent, no, no caffeine for three years already. Anyway, so pancakes I had. And I had pancakes with bananas and chocolate flakes from the Chocolatery in Yarra Glen. Very nice. But then on Wednesday, as ministry team at our staff meeting, we had pancakes again <laughs> with syrup and ice cream. There was no sense of deprivation, no sense of scarcity, no sense of self-denial in that day at all. If you know anything about Lent at all, it often sounds like we might have to be relinquishing, giving up something. But what it's really on about is chasing what really matters. Seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you, says Matthew in chapter six. One way of looking at Lent could be thinking about it as giving up something to give to someone. Chasing what really matters, righteousness and relationship with God. So I'm gonna set the scene for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. That's the Christians in Philippi. Paul wrote this letter, middle of the century, of that century, around about 50 to 60 AD. So the city of Philippi first gets a mention in the book of Acts in chapter 16. So you might like to look at that when you get home. It's a great story. In fact, three stories. Paul's been travelling around. It's his third so-called missionary journey, and he's travelling now with Timothy and Silas, sharing the gospel good news of God in Jesus Paul's moved on from Israel, who took the message a bit ho-hum, mostly, and he's gone well and truly into the world of the Romans, the Roman conquerors, those people who have been influenced by Greek thought and their gods. Their gods are everywhere. Gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, gods everywhere, in the temples, in the homes, everywhere, different sorts of gods different ways of thinking, very different to the Jewish way of thinking. Philippi is the leading city of the district in the county of Macedonia, or the country of Macedonia, near Greece. We read in Acts 16 that Paul and his companions go outside the city walls to the river to a place of prayer. Probably there are some who are God-fearing people, people who are intrigued by this one God, Long story short, there's a wealthy woman there. Unusual for that day to have wealthy women. They are usually attached to a man, but it would appear that Lydia wasn't. She was a seller of purple cloth. 
Purple cloth was something that was very, very expensive, not like this poly cotton. Purple dye came from a little shellfish and it took a lot of work to collect it and so kings and really important people wore purple cloth. Well, Lydia came to faith that day, hearing Paul's message of the good news gospel. Paul's having a good time. All seems well with the world for Paul. He goes another day to the same place, but he's accosted by a slave woman. Back in the day, slave women were shorn of all their hair. She probably had a scarf on. There's this future teller, this fortune teller, accosting Paul. They're a suspicious lot, these Mediterranean folk, very different from the Jewish folk, who supposedly weren't superstitious because they knew a lot about trust and about relationship with one true God, the creator God. Anyway, this woman, for days she's following Paul. And Paul, out of annoyance, delivers her of the spirit that's controlling her. Now, my thoughts go in all sorts of directions there, but I think it's very interesting that you do ministry out of annoyance. <laughs> I don't know what about you. I think that's fascinating. I mean, he didn't have to write in that word annoyance, did he? But he did. Well, her owners are furious that she's been delivered of this spirit that enables her to tell the future because she did make a real lot of money for them. Well, they agitate with the crowd and they grab Paul and Silas and they're taken off to the magistrate and the crowds join in in their complaint of throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It's not quite true, actually. Anyway, they get thrown into prison, into remand, no trial. Now, prison, if you know the story at all, this story gets very interesting. It's very interesting things happen to Paul in Philippi. There's an earthquake while he's in prison and the prison doors all open and the chains become loose and the poor jailer wakes up. My question is why was he asleep in the first place? But anyway, he wakes up and he sees what's happened and Paul stops him from doing what he's meant to do because he's actually totally responsible for what's happening in this place. Long story short again, the jailer comes to faith in Jesus and he and his household are baptised. No more fear for this jailer. He's filled with faith. Paul is officially released from jail by the magistrate and told he can go. But Paul, being Paul, reminds them he's actually a Roman citizen and so he should get personalised and public escort out of the jail. The officers don't want trouble, so that's exactly what happens. Paul, with Silas, there's no mention of Timothy in the story at this point, goes to Lydia's house, the lady, the seller of purple cloth, and meets with the new Christians over the next few days, doesn't say exactly how long, to encourage them, to encourage them all before he goes on to the next part of his journey, sharing the gospel in the Mediterranean world a world of suspicion, superstitions, of child sacrifice, slavery and all sorts of other things. A world of fear, not faith. So we come to our letter from Paul. We're looking at Philippians. Timothy is his scribe most likely, taking his dictation. 
And Paul is very encouraging. He loves these Philippian Christians. He remembers and thanks God in prayer for them all the time. Every time they come to mind, it's with joy and he gives thanks. He acknowledges their partnership in the gospel from those very early days. And later in the letter, he acknowledges that they are very generous in their giving. They're kind of living the life that the early Acts tells us about, Acts chapter 2 and 4, where the Christians got together like family, sharing a house, a room or food, like I do when my lot come from Bairnsdale, and gathering for prayer and communion and praise of God. So Paul, in his letter, encourages them in their tough times, and we had a great song about that, to remember that God will complete the work begun in them. Complete the work that's being done in them, that they will be as Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 138, the works of your hands, God, will not be abandoned. Paul tells this group in his letter that he has a right to feel this way for them all because he has them all in his heart. There's a real soft spot there for these people. So who's there? Maybe there's Lydia, the seller of purple cloth. Pretty sure, because it seems like they've been meeting at her house, and I imagine if she's wealthy, it would have been a big house. Then there's the jailer. It was too hot before to put this one on. It's the jailer. Lydia, who's generously giving of her money and prayer. And the jailer. I like to think... He's got a different perspective and attitude now. He's still giving unto Caesar, as uh, Jesus spoke about, but with revelation light and understanding that we all need grace, even those in prison need God's grace. Then there are the households, the spouses, perhaps the widowed family members, lots of children, lots of joy. And I wonder, did this group include the unnamed slave woman. The one who would torment people with possible futures and was tormented herself, but now freed, at least in one sense. Was she accepted and part of that group of followers too? I hope so. How Paul longs for them to be in their company again but he's in prison, a crushing, oppressing. He's in Rome, the centre of power in the then known world. What would his future hold? Well, Paul really doesn't care. Elsewhere, he's written about being with God in the spirit or in the body. It doesn't make any difference to him. He is a person of faith, not a person of fear. So Paul writes... And he writes a very special prayer for them, a reminder prayer, I want to call it, and we're going to read it now. And this is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This special prayer, it's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? He prays that their love would abound, that it would increase, that it would overflow, 
that there be a lot of love for each other in the world. He says elsewhere in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul often repeats himself in his letters. You'll pick that up. But this is not a gushy prayer. It's not a ooh-ah, oh, it's so good to see you, that's wonderful. It's a love. It's a love with knowledge and depth of insight, a sensitivity to the ways of God and therefore to each other. He's praying that they would have a love that would be God-inspired. We talked about the Holy Spirit earlier this year. A wisdom that comes from God. Wisdom from heaven, as James puts it. And he prays that this love is intentional because he says there about discerning what is best. What's best to love? To judge what are the most important things in life. Not fortune telling, future telling. What's most important? So he talks about being pure and blameless, aligned with God and God's ways, right up to the time of Jesus' return, the day of Christ, when they meet Jesus face to face. Because he is coming. I've read a book recently called Damascus. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, but wisely read. Very interesting. Jesus is coming. He is coming. That's a phrase that came up in this book. A time when in God all things will be resolved and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Paul prays that they'd all be filled with the fruit of righteousness, the ways of Jesus, wholesome, tasty, healthy, growing as followers of Jesus, all understanding very well that righteousness comes through a close relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And all that, all to the glory and praise of God, so that the credit goes to God, not look at me, look how good I am, look what I've done. Paul reminds them all that it's about being in a trust relationship with God, living from a place of faith, not of fear, Trusting that God's ideas might be the right ones, God's ways might be the right ways, that love really matters. Chasing what really matters, that's the title of this message. Chasing what really matters, righteousness and relationship with God in Jesus. But we know ourselves, don't we? We live with our own ideas of what we personally think is right, our own sense of righteousness that we sometimes find hard to give up. Yesterday, Michael was doing the great decluttering of his three sheds. He would argue two, but there's one underneath the barbecue and underneath the bench, near the barbecue. I count that as a third shed because that's where he goes to get his screwdriver and whatever else. Anyway, he was doing his big declutter yesterday for that roadside rubbish collection thing. Maybe we too need to declutter some of our ways of doing our righteousness, our behaviours and actions, maybe our beliefs and attitudes. A couple of examples. What about this one? I'm entitled to act this way. I'm the boss. 
I'm entitled to act this way because I worked hard for it. I'm entitled to be like this because I'm the parent or the grandparent. I do that one. I've got to deal with that. Rethink that one. Or I'm entitled to do this because I'm in the role. What about this? I'm right. That person's got it wrong. This is how it should be done. Fill in the dots. Or what about this one? I'm okay. I'm doing well. When actually we're struggling and we just might need to reach out and ask for support. Or conversely, in our society we hear a lot about me time. I need my me time. Now, of course, I'm joking a little bit here. There has to be a proper balance of boundaries and self-care. Sometimes our relinquishing, our giving up, might be about recognising opportunities for blessings. I think I've mentioned before, I was taught to have a very clean and tidy house because that was the right thing to do. Thankfully, I relearned that I could be truly blessed by the hospitality I offered in my not-so-clean and tidy home. Because relationships are what count in the kingdom of God. So perhaps our giving up might look a little bit more like giving to others. Remember, love God, love others as you love yourself. Perhaps even we, in our times, 2020, live with our suspicions and superstitions, our future, our fortune-telling. Now, we could go to the obvious of um, astrology charts and whatnot. But what about superannuation? Up and down goes the dollar. It's doing weird stuff. What next will it do? Or the belief, I need to have my own home. I've got to own that house, or a second house, or a third. Or what about the thought around, I need a certain education, or my children do, or they won't get on in life. Or what about a more recent one, the coronavirus? There's a lot of fear there, a lot of masks being worn that are useless. There's a sort of a superstition there, isn't there? So, fear or faith? Sometimes we experience fear and faith at the same time. Or we fluctuate, we go from here to here to here to here. But where is Jesus in all this? Where is God? There's a story in the New Testament about Jesus being in the boat with the disciples and the waves are really, really big. And Jesus is in the boat. And yes, he does still the waters, but there's a time when the waves are really big and they've forgotten that Jesus is in the boat with them. So during this time of Lent, for the next few weeks in particular, we get to ask ourselves, am I chasing what really matters? Am I chasing what is really important? What sort of treasure am I chasing? Am I chasing kingdom of God stuff? Stuff like... God's righteousness, God's a relationship with God, 
Am I chasing God's ways? Am I chasing God's love, which means love for others too? Because we are loved, we can remember that. Communion reminds us again and again that we can give out of love. Or am I chasing something else? Something that won't matter in the end when I'm face to face with Jesus. So my question for today is, what am I chasing? And I'll leave you with a beautiful blessing from the same book, from Philippians, a little bit later in the book, from Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from Jesus, put it into practice and the peace of God will be with you. So go out into this week knowing the peace of God will be with you as you chase what's really important. Bless you all.